that all these organizations came up with their own systems of rating quality of evidence and strength of recommendations, most of which were not well thought through. It was chaos. Right. All these systems, nobody could, nobody could understand them. Even if you understood one, you'd turn around and you'd be faced with another. Hey, Brad. Hey, Matt. Good to see you on a Saturday afternoon. Yeah, yeah. Good to see you. Um, this is fun because we're uh, we're going to hear from Gordon Guyatt again today. Um, part two, uh, part two of the interview, Electric Boogaloo, as it were. <laughs> part two. Yeah. So um, more about uh, evidence-based medicine. When I first heard the interview, I was really undervaluing the importance of evidence-based medicine, but um, is it right that there's this article in the British Medical Journal that came out ranking it? Yeah, so British Medical Journal is obviously quite prestigious, um, one of the top general medicine journals in the world. In I think it was in 2007, they surveyed their readers, um, and over 11,000 people responded, and they basically had an opportunity to vote on the top Uh, medical discoveries in the last 150 years. And uh, evidence-based medicine made the top 10. In fact, it was ranked as number seven. (laughs) It it came in ahead of uh, the computer and diagnostic imaging. And if I recall, uh, number one was uh, clean water and sewage disposal, which (laughs) makes a lot of sense. Um, But yeah, evidence-based medicine did, did quite well. Wow, that's really incredible. Uh, uh, you know, I, I sort of was thinking, oh, well, it was a really important event in just sort of research or statistics or medical research, but not, you know, just in sounds like in medicine in general, it was a big game changer. Yeah, I, I think up until uh, EBM, evidence-based medicine became kind of a part of practice for many physicians. It was a lot of decision-making for patients was probably based on just clinical experience. You know, yeah. I've seen three patients like you and this intervention seemed to work in two. So I'll, I'll give you, I suggest that um, you take the, the same intervention. EBM goes, it, it does take into account clinical experience, but it's really driven by what the totality of evidence is for a particular clinical question or scenario. Mm. And then, and and Dr. Guyot will get into this. um, And and in addition to the clinical experience and the best systematic review evidence, what are the values and preferences of the patient or the client in front of you? Yeah. Now, is is that where grade comes in? Well, so great. Good question. So great. Um, so Dr. Guide is a, is the co-chair of the grade working group, which is essentially an international group that has developed the methods for looking at the certainty or the quality of evidence okay. based on systematic reviews of the evidence for a particular um, research question or clinical scenario mm-hmm. um, to look at what the certainty of, of evidence is on an outcome by outcome basis. So you know, if you're interested, for example, in whether vitamin D reduces the risk of a bone fracture, yeah. um, there's randomized control trials, there might mm-hmm. be observational studies, you do a systematic review of the literature, you find out 
what is the best estimate of the risk reduction. And you'd also mm -hmm. look at what the estimates are for potential harms. Oh. Vitamin D, maybe if you take too much of it, might be harmful. Hmm. And then you come up with an estimate. So let's say there's a 10% risk reduction um, mm -hmm. for those that um, take vitamin D supplementation. Mm -hmm. And there's a confidence interval that surrounds that. So let's say it ranges from anywhere from 2% risk reduction to upwards of a 15% uh, risk reduction. Where grade comes in is it, yeah. it moves beyond what that risk reduction is. It tells you, well, how certain are we in that actual risk reduction? Oh, so, uh, and okay. it ranges from very low certainty yeah. to high certainty. So if you have high certainty, you, you're kind of in a, a position where you can make a causal inference. Um, mm. If you have very low certainty, it means like, well, it might work or it might not work. It could be the calcium. It could be the potassium. It could be many other things. We're not really sure about vitamin D. Even though we have this estimate says a 10% risk reduction, it doesn't mean that we have a lot of certainty in it. Oh, okay. So you come up with the, you come up with a risk reduction and then you come up with how certain you are uh, it's, uh, uh, <laughs> it makes me think of, um, my fifth grade, this is a weird story, but it makes me think of my fifth grade teacher, Mr. Ott, uh, who, uh, had like a, a mild vendetta against the weatherman. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if it was just like a bad weatherman in, in that particular County or whatever, but he, I remember really specifically, he was telling us that they, they had like a 65% chance of being, of being right. You know, so like weatherman would come on the news and he would say like, well, uh, there's a 65% uh, chance of rain. Right. And he told us this and then he pointed to the grade board and he was like, 65% is a D minus. It's a D minus every time. <laughs> yeah. And so like, you know, I, just, I, I always think of him just like pointing at the board uh, with his middle finger that had like a little piece missing and talking about like basically that weathermen got off easy. There was no assessment of the certainty of it. It was just sort of like, here's a number, it's probably going to rain like maybe 65% chance. Yeah, well, and that's a great analogy because uh, I think a lot of people, we just stop with 65%. It means, yeah. and does 65% mean 65% of the province or the state is going to be covered in rain? Does it mean, <laughs> you know, there's a whole bunch of things that go into coming up with that number. Sure. Yeah, it's really like you have to, it's kind of like a when it comes to evidence, again, let's mm -hmm. say vitamin D, yeah. it's kind of like a, a three or four step process. Yeah. What is the best estimate? Um, okay. Step one. Yeah. Um, so that would be the pooled estimate based on systematic reviews, ideally. Yeah. Two, what, you know, what's the confidence interval or the range of that estimate? So mm -hmm. um, does it, you know, give, give or take, let's say five or 10%. Okay. Um, number three what's the certainty of that evidence? So you yeah. use, um, for example, the grade approach. Now there's alternatives to the grade approach and we'll talk mm -hmm. and, and I think we'll get into that a little bit along the way. Um, okay. but yeah. And so those are, those are kind of the three core steps. Unfortunately, a lot of people stop at step one. Sure. Um, sure. and, and, and we'll, and Dr. Guy, also gets into essentially step four, so you have the best estimate yeah. for vitamin D, let's say, mm -hmm. um, in terms of the potential risk reduction. And okay. let's say you also have estimates for the potential increase in harm if you take too much vitamin D or take it for sure. too long. Yeah. Um, and he, he gets into, and it's really interesting, he gets into, okay, so you have the benefits and you have the harms, but then mm -hmm. how do you actually move um, to a recommendation for a patient or a client 
yeah. or oh, for the yeah. public if you were making uh, guideline recommendations, yeah, like dietary geez. guideline recommendations. That's fascinating to me. I, I sort of thought that grade was more about like looking at the totality of evidence and, and ranking it. This seems like a much more complicated and uh, and I love this phrase that you use quite a bit, the totality of evidence, right? It also, it sounds kind of epic, which is why I like it. But you've got all of these studies and they're ranked by importance as well to find, to be as accurate as you can about that figure. And then, you know, how certain are you about that figure? But then also I hadn't thought at all about values and preferences, you know, like, is it even worth it? Certainty of evidence <laughs> might, you know, might be a factor there if you're going to go spend, you know, 35 bucks on an umbrella uh, real quickly before you walk to work. Uh, yeah. So really this, this concept of values and preferences has us move from that certainty of evidence um, for, for a particular outcome to making a decision. Um, mm. Now it's interesting, 65%, that's pretty high, right? Yeah. Like probably everyone would take their umbrella, especially if they had one. Yeah, of course. But, you know, in epidemiology or clinical epidemiology or nutritional epidemiology, we mm -hmm. don't we rarely see estimates that are above, let's say, 30%. And 30% is a big estimate. Like if you have a 30% absolute risk reduction, that's yeah. that's that's uh, that's a big deal by epidemiological standards. Sure. So we're usually working with numbers like anywhere from let's say one or two percent yeah. um yeah. absolute risk reductions mm -hmm. to let's say maybe upwards of a 30 or 40 percent absolute risk reduction but sure. that's rare um uh, so you know if the chance of rain is 30 percent or 20 percent or 10 percent yeah um you whether to take an umbrella or not um probably would depend on having more information around certainty and what you know what that chance of rain actually means yeah that makes sense that makes a lot of sense you know, the theme of this podcast could be complexity, right? There's so there's so much data to go through. There's so many different interpretations, uh, potentially based on, you know, sort of the filter as far as how you interpret it, whether it's truly evidence-based medicine, whether it's your, as you were saying, your anecdotal clinical experience, uh, you know, uh, which sounds like is a little more what they used to do before there were guidelines for the medical literature. Yeah, there's a lot of moving kind of pieces to to good decision making to evidence based decision making. Yeah, there's more moving pieces in nutrition than there is in let's say general medicine. Where yeah, you know, there's evidence for a drug versus yeah. a placebo um, for reducing the risk of bone fracture. Mm -hmm. But nutrition, yeah, there's it's harder to have a higher degree of certainty. Yeah, given how given the fact that we often have just observational data, and given the fact that um, vitamin D is one of many different vitamins um, sure. and minerals that work synergistically. Yeah. I think it's a really good point to say, to talk about uh, nutrition in sort of a, a different light from a kind of a, a research perspective, just because as you say, everything, you know, it's so synergistic, everything is so interwoven. And I, and I think to me, that means all the more attention should be spent on uh, the the totality of evidence and the quality of evidence. Yeah. And, and this episode, Matt, it's, um, yeah. so yeah, just to reiterate, so we'll get more history on evidence-based medicine, like what okay. it is and how it kind of came to be, which is kind of fun. Yeah. He's going to talk about, Dr. Guy, it's going to talk about the history of guidelines and, you know, how they, how it used to be. They used to be basically just a, you know, typically a bunch of 
older, probably white men sitting around a table, yeah. um, coming up with what they thought was best for their patients. Um, yeah. and then writing those recommendations under the auspice of some organization. Um, sure. and he talks a bit about the evolution of, of making guideline recommendations and then the evolution of grade, um, how, you know, it kind of started with the, this idea of critical appraisal, mm-hmm. then moved to kind of evidence-based medicine and then and then grade came along and basically was a, a refinement of evidence-based medicine through um, an inter, a, a kind of a growing international group of methodologists who um, came up with methods to look at the certainty of evidence from systematic reviews and then to move from the systematic review evidence base to making guideline recommendations for clients, um, patients, members of the public. And, and where values and preferences come in yeah. in making those recommendations. So that's kind of what Dr. Guyatt um, talks about. Yeah, he's such an interesting guy to listen to. Uh, and of course, it's a really interesting topic. I'm really glad that we could have this content on the podcast. And um, we hope that you guys enjoy this, uh, the second part of the interview from Dr. Guyatt. 30 to 40 years ago now, people started to produce guidelines. And so for our audience, guidelines are, um, are based on the, ideally, the best systematic reviews of the questions, of the PICO questions of interest. Uh, and then they kind of move from that evidence base to making recommendations for clinicians or members of the public. They're um, formal structured recommendations. Before, you had groups of largely self-appointed experts who would write review articles telling people what to do. Mm-hmm. And then organizations started to make formal guidelines. So you would have the leading American endocrine society would make up guidelines and the American thoracic society and the gastroenterologists and the American college of physicians. They'd all make their, they'd all start making guidelines. And although you provided uh, a approach that, um, capture some of what we now think of trustworthiness, Um, the initial approaches of all these organizations were almost always what we now call GOBSAT. And Mm -hmm. GOBSAT is good old boys sitting around a table. So (laughs) it was the experts in the field, many of whom were received large amounts of money from the makers of the drugs that they were recommending. Uh, they were typically older white males and they'd be sitting around the table together making these formal recommendations. But it was still a change. It was now formal recommendations endorsed by particular societies as opposed to just experts writing these narrative reviews that people would pick up. Mm-hmm. 30 years ago or so, people started to get the idea that maybe we should be thinking about the quality of the evidence behind our recommendations, and maybe we should start thinking they were stronger, weak recommendations. Mm-hmm. The result was that all these organizations came up with their own systems of rating quality of evidence and strength of recommendations, most of which were not well thought through. It was chaos. Right. All these systems, nobody could, nobody could understand them. Even if you understood one, you'd turn around and you'd be faced with another. 
So, so then, so that now we're kind of, so we're kind of hopefully we're moving from how evidence-based medicine uh, kind of came to be, and then realizing how to make these principles that to optimize their utility for clinical practice. And now we're moving into grade, and you're kind of co-founding of of that group, which was about 25 years ago, approximately. The, the, the a guy who trained with me at McMaster then went back to Norway. It was his idea. His name was Andy Oxman. And um, uh, Andy and I uh, uh, continued to work together after he left McMaster. We're still good buddies. Uh, I was visiting Norway when Andy introduced the idea to me in the summer of 1999. Summers in Norway, the sun basically never goes down. <laughs> and so that puts you in a frame of mind where you uh, are liable to sit and discuss or argue for most of the night with a cherished colleague, which Andy and I did about this notion of how could we optimally rate quality of evidence and go from evidence to recommendations. That was the genesis uh, the group that ultimately became grade first met in the year 2000 and in 2004 uh, published in the BMJ the first publication laying out the grade system. So now, 2004, right. And what was, so Dr. Schunemann was also uh, and is a prime mover in well, grade. He, he um, yes. We involved a number of people from the beginning, uh, including Holger, but he decided his passion was in uh, systematic review methodology and particularly guideline methodology. And mm -hmm. so he very much took the grade and uh, grade has been the center of his career. Um, uh, subsequently, um, Andy was the first chair of what became the Great Working Group. The term "great" was an idea that Holger came up with to describe, to give us a name. In 2008, Holger and I, Andy decided he didn't want to chair the group anymore, and Holger and I took over as co-chairs of the group. What Great decided when we started meeting in 2000 and met probably three times a year until 2004 when we first published the paper, and went through probably literally hundreds of examples. One of the big contributions is we identified that risk of bias wasn't the only problem that could make right. evidence less trustworthy. And we decided that inconsistent results, some studies show effects, some studies don't, you can't tell why, even if they were all low risk of bias studies, you had a problem with inconsistency. And we decided that if the sample sizes of the available studies were all small and you had wide confidence intervals, imprecision was a problem. Mm -hmm. And we decided that if the evidence, if there's a patient before you, so for instance, in my practice as an internist, I have lots of folks over 90 in the randomized trials that might guide my practice, there were very few enrollees over 90. And the question arises whether the results in younger patients can be applied to older patients. 
And so we have issues of what Great has called indirectness of the evidence, and finally publication bias. So the bottom line is one of the big contributions in Great was to identify these categories mm-hmm. of uh, limitations in the evidence where, yes, the focus at the beginning with Dave Sackett was risk of bias. But right. it became clear that one could define what we have classified as five categories of limitations that can lower the quality or certainty of the evidence. And the, the, a very important distinction to make in moving from risk of bias to the trustworthy of evidence or the quality of evidence is quality of evidence is about the body of literature for a particular research question. So based on systematic reviews, we need to look at risk of bias among studies, indirectness among studies, imprecision among studies, publication bias. Well, um, imprecision about the pooled estimates of all the studies, not about the individual studies, right. inconsistency across the study. So uh, you're absolutely right. It's based on a body of evidence and uh, ideally a systematic review and if appropriate, as it often is, a meta-analysis that allows the most sophisticated uh, evaluation of the evidence. Right. Versus when you're looking at a single study, let's say a single randomized trial or a single cohort study, you're just looking at risk of bias or um, the validity of that study, then saying, okay, well, what is the size of the effect and is it applicable to my to my patient in front of me, for example, or to the to the population? Yes. But two things. First of all, you're not only looking at risk of bias, you're also looking at precision with respect to the individual study. You may also be looking at indirectness. If the study is about young people and your patient's over 90, there's still indirectness issues in individual studies. And you shouldn't be using the individual study anyway. One of the fundamental principles of EBM is we need systematic summaries of the best evidence. And if you Mm -hmm. pick any individual study, you may well be misguided. Right. So it's really interesting how um, Dave Sackett's kind of critical appraisal or critical appraisal at the bedside, those concepts then kind of um, get developed more um, as you come along and work with him and others. Um, and then they kind of creep in or kind of bleed into grade and uh, additional concepts when it comes to the body of evidence. Yeah, so, so, so it's an evolution of the thinking. But I started to look at it and I said, this is not optimally, or A, this is not optimally organized. And second, it puts insufficient emphasis on the whole process of going from the evidence to the management decisions with the patients. Mm -hmm. When I realized that, that's where the user's guides to the medical literature was built because now we had three different elements. We said, okay, what is the the focus on the risk of bias? Then on what are the results where issues of precision came in? And then how do you apply the results to the patient, which is where issues of directness Mm -hmm. come in? 
And then the, and those three concepts are things that we evaluate when we use grade. Well, then, so, so I think, I don't know, the first Usage Guys published in 1993. By 2000, when grade is now starting to percolate, we mm-hmm. published, as you mentioned, I think 25 papers in the Usage Guys by that time. But that moves the process along. We published our first user's guide about guidelines in 1995. At that time, one of the great things about doing the user's guides for me was I was the editor of the series. And when somebody wanted to do one about guidelines, I had to learn about guidelines. 1995, I didn't know about guidelines. Mm -hmm. Um, So, but now we have to write a user's guide and guidelines, better learn about guidelines. Right. And it was only at that time what became fundamental to EBM. So everybody thinks of it as evidence and focus on the evidence. But as it turns out, it is equally focused on people's values and preferences. Mm-hmm. Because it was what, what happened was, okay, so we're starting to teach people, you know, okay, let's use the literature. It's not a reader's guide anymore. It's a user's guide. Well, what's that mean? It's people who are using the literature to guide their practice. So that's a fundamental shift from the reader's guides to the user's guides. Right. And so now we start doing this. And now we say, okay, let's look at the results and see how we use them in practice. It seems utterly obvious now, but it wasn't then. But we start to look, okay, there's these benefits. And there is these harms, and we have our certainty or quality of the evidence and the benefits and the harms and their magnitude. Now, what do we do? How do you weigh these benefits and harms? You're going to have to make a decision. You have to say, do the benefits outweigh the harms or do the harms outweigh the benefits? Or is it a close call? And how do you make those decisions? And then a new light bulb goes on. It has to do with values and preferences, right? How do you weigh these benefits and harms? It's values and preferences. And then you start thinking, whose values and preferences? And it quickly became evident to us, and I think to most folks, it's the value, it should be the values and preferences of the patients. Mm-hmm. And then, I think it was in 2000, we said, now, There are three principles of evidence-based medicine. We need systematic reviews of the best evidence. We need rules or guides to decide what's more trustworthy and less trustworthy evidence. And the ironic third principle of evidence-based medicine, evidence never tells us what to do, ever. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. It's always evidence in the context of values and preferences. And 20 years after we first said that, people still mischaracterize EBM. And somehow they've missed 20 years of vivid writing on our part saying values and preferences are core to evidence based practice. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to hear more episodes of Methodology Matters, a podcast on evidence-based nutrition, please head over to methodologymatters.podbean.com. If you'd like more information on the GRADE Working Group, please visit 
gradeworkinggroup.org. That's gradeworkinggroup.org. And if you'd like to learn more about Dr. Guyot and his work, you can find him at clarityresearch.ca or on Wikipedia. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you on the next episode of Methodology Matters.